My name's Johnny Sharples. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Matthew, that's excessive. Welcome to the Man Marking Podcast. Today, we're joined by Johnny Sharples. Yes, I'm, I'm Johnny Sharples. Um, when you say who I support, do you mean in terms of football or... Uh, Generally, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, we'll go with football for now. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a Newcastle United supporter. Um, I'd say unfortunately, but as, as Tramia supporters, I think you've probably had worse deals um, in recent times. So um, I'll just stick to my guns and say I'm a very, very proud um, Newcastle United fan. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of what I do um, muck about on uh, Twitter mainly, write bits and pieces here and there, Um look after my cats uh just generally have um quite a quite a nice little life at the moment this is the man marking podcast today i'm joined by the two sexiest fellas in podcast land it's ryan pulford and anthony olsen chaps how are we good mate i'm uh, feeling really good we're in your in your house socially distanced of course just had a lovely little croissant a bit of chocolate in sunny outside great start to the day yeah, I'm good as well, mate. Feel really good to know that I'm the sexiest or one of the two sexiest men in podcast land. I don't know what that counts for, but we'll take it. We'll take it. So yeah, I'm good. It it is a short list. It's a short list. <laughs> so before we get on with uh, with Johnny Sharple's interview, as per usual, we have an opening question, and today's opening question is inspired by Danny Ings. Danny Ings has become the twentieth English player to score twenty goals in a Premier League season. Now, what I want from you two is, you two knowledge busters, is to give me how many of the other 20 that you can name. That's what I want from you two. And you've got a minute to do it. So as soon as I hit the hit the clock, hit start, just start shouting names out, okay? Okay. Go. Vardy. Oh, that's Shearer. Yeah. Did that one get it? Oh, uh, Kane. Yeah. Fowler. Yeah. I'm not sure I did that to Son. Yeah. Cole. Yes. Lampard. Yes. Sheringham. Yes. Gerrard. No. Oh. Oh, Michael Bridges. No. Oh, Kevin Phillips. Yes. How many were up to? Uh, three, seven, nine. Not enough. <laughs> oh God. Uh, Matt Letizia. Yes. Oh yeah. There's some really obvious ones you haven't yeah. done yet. Where's Ferdinand, Rooney? Yeah, there's another two. Come on, fellas, you're better than this. Uh, not Peter Crouch. Three, two, one. Time is up. That's the pressure on Time is up. Time is up. So, there we got seven, uh, 12 out of 20. So, do you want the full list? So, the full list from top to bottom. Peter Beardsley. James Beatty. Darren Bent. Andy Cole. Said Cole, said Cole, yeah, got Cole, didn't 
Yeah, you did. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry. sorry, yeah. Stan Collymore, Les Ferdinand, Robbie Fowler, Danny Ings, Andy Johnson, Harry Kane, Frank Lampard, Matt Letizia, Kevin Phillips, Wayne Rooney, Chris Sutton, Alan Shearer, Teddy Sheringham, Daniel Sturridge, Jamie Vardy, and Ian Wright. Okay. So today's guest is Johnny Sharples. First of all, Anthony, what I want to know is, why did we want to speak to Johnny specifically? Well, Johnny's quite big on Twitter, isn't he? He's really funny, I think. One of the first tweets I saw of him was, um, was a, a Darth Vader um, impersonation well, with Kevin Keegan saying he's still got to go to Hoff and get something. <laughs> 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 That's a pretty good, one of the funniest things I've seen. So, but he's, he's, he's right up our street. He, he deals with mental health. Um, he's in a master for calm. And he, um, he plays a lot of football manager. He loves football. He loves Newcastle United as well. And it seemed like a perfect thing to talk to him. He's got a far reach on Twitter as well. So we were really excited to talk to him. It was a really funny interview as well. Yeah, absolutely. And every episode we have a theme. Ryan, do you want to give the listeners what this week's theme is? Yeah, so this week's theme is suicide, spotting the signs, grieving and raising awareness. Fantastic. So that's enough from us. This is Johnny's interview. Mental health and and football and, and sort of looking at ways of trying to encourage men to open up. Can you sort of give us an idea as to why you agreed to do an interview for, for Man Mark and Johnny? Yeah, so like you say, it's a combination of, of football and um, a combination of football and mental health stuff, um, which are two very big passions of, of mine. Um, football much more long-standing than, than mental health stuff, which I've sort of become more introduced uh, to for over the past five or six years after my brother passed away. He took his own life in, in December 2014, and after that, it sort of became a big uh, learning experience. And like you say, men... men um, probably need to open up a bit more um, about their mental health, mental health issues. I think there has been great strides in that respect recently, but um, like I say, these are two great passions of mine in terms of football and mental health. And so whenever the opportunity comes to combine them both and, and like yourselves with this podcast are doing, um, it's something that I, I really try my best to get involved with. Did you want to tell us something maybe unusual that we wouldn't already know about yet? Um, live, living your life on Twitter means you've probably I probably exposed my followers to to most of my life um, at some point. Um, but uh, I do have quite. A, I don't think I've ever talked about it on Twitter. Um, but I do have quite a phobia of fish. Um, so yeah, the, I, just fish in general make me feel very uncomfortable. Um, just can't go in the sea and keep, like even like paddle on the beach. Just with the idea of one of them might touch my legs makes me feel um, really uneasy. Uh, I took my nephew round um, the Sea Life Centre. There's a little Sea Life Centre in the traffic near the Trafford Centre in um, the outskirts of Manchester, um, and so they had a touch pool in there. And the woman at the touch pool was like, oh, we've got some starfish if you'd like to touch them. Um, so I said, oh, I tried to encourage my nephew to touch them. He's like, yeah, you go you go and stroke one. And he said, oh, no, I'll, I'll only do it if you do it. I was like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> um, so as soon as I say I'm not doing it, he won't do it. And then we're just sort of this awkward standoff in front of this woman trying to make us touch a starfish. Um, but I, I held my guns and refused to touch it so yeah anything to do with when they're alive when they're i'm a vegetarian so i don't i'm never never eating fish anyway so i um, just 
this they sell them in the fishmongers in the supermarkets with the head still attached and it's just, it, just the whole concept of fish in i can watch the one telly i can watch finding nemo that's fine um but just actual fish absolutely disgusting vile creatures <laughs> I th- honestly, I, I really felt your passion, how much you hate fish. Oh, if, if I was ever on Room 101 on the BBC, um, yeah, fish would be straight in there. In there. To be honest with you, I'm not an enormous fan of fish myself, I have to admit, mate. I, um, not quite to the uh, the vendetta you seem to have against them, but uh, no, I'm not an enormous fan myself. And, and so, Johnny, you obviously you run your, your Twitter account and whatever. What What is it that you do? It's, it's obviously... I think for people who who don't know who you are or, or do and, and and don't know enough enormous enormous amounts about yet, do you want to kind of explain you know what it is, how did it start, and and that sort of thing? Um, in terms of Twitter, I think um, I came to Twitter re- not massively early because it's been going for uh, fourteen or so years, I suppose. But I don't think many people were using it in those early few years. Um, so I don't know if you remember when Stephen Fry got stuck in a lift um, and live tweeted that. So that was about 2008 or 2009. Um, and it was quite, um, it got a lot of coverage on the news um, in, you know, newspapers and stuff, online articles. So I went and checked out what um, Twitter was all about, uh, joined it. I joined Facebook quite early when you had to have a um, university email address to join it, was joined MySpace early, um, quite a few different social networks. So um, yeah, I joined, joined Twitter quite early on and then just just used it as, as you would use it in, in general, like don't know specific aims to, you know, get a lot of followers or get loads of retweets, just chatting to people that I knew um, from university, from work, from um, high school, things like that, people that I still knew. Um, mainly tweeted what my scores on uh, Call of Duty were um, quite early on, how many kills and how many deaths and what my best kill streaks were. Obviously, you know, looking looking back at that, I really wasn't trying to get a lot of retweets or followers, <laughs> just uh, doing stuff like that. But um, I think by the time... So I got, I got into it and, and followed some different people um, and then saw that some people were um, using it to, to, to do jokes and stuff. Um, and I always, growing up, um, when I was a teenager into university, wanted to be a stand-up comic, but sort of didn't have the nerve um, to get up in front of an audience. Um, so this seems like a, quite a good um use of twitter to try and just make people laugh and you don't have to stand in front of an audience you don't have to get heckled you don't have to have a pre-prepared uh routine you can just react to whatever's happening in the world and so yeah sort of got followed by people that had large followings themselves and when they retweeted it to their following some of those followers would follow me and just sort of escalated from there really um and now just every 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 day every couple of days i'll just try and try and find something that will make me laugh on and then hopefully that makes other people laugh as well um i do have another job which is a boring office job um that pays the bills um but then this sort of on the side as well and um helping other people helping companies and stuff sometimes um with with their tweets as well so um yeah a lot of it it's very surreal to think that just by joining um, this social network a few years ago, over 10 years ago now, because uh, Stephen Fry was stuck in a lift, has opened up a whole sort of bunch more opportunities for myself as well. So, yeah, it's always been under my actual name. It's always been uh, me. I've never, you know, tried to 
hide who I was because obviously I never had intentions um, when I first joined to to you know look look to do anything more than have a chat with my friends um, and people that I knew. So yeah, and, and once it's you know once you've got more followers, it's hard to then sort of rebrand yourself as hide behind another name or hide behind a company name or something. So no, I've always been uh, out there with my name. Um, <clears throat> it's good that people think it's a stage name. If I was picking a stage name, I, I honestly wouldn't pick my own name. I'd pick some, <laughs> some uh, you know, Max Power, like Homer Simpson does or, or something. So, Well, there is yeah. a the Max, Max, Max Power that used to play for Tramia. There was a player that used to play for Tramia called Max yeah. Power. Plays for Sunderland now, I think, or did but, did do quite recently. And what's your involvement with it, with, with Joe, with, with, with football Joe? Uh, so I, um, like I say, I do a bit of did, did or do a bit of writing as and when I can. And, and Joe were um, one of the one of the one of the one of the few people that that let me write what I wanted. Um, so I used to pitch to them quite a lot. Um, I knew a few people that worked there. So uh, Carl, who you, you've spoken to, used to be a staff writer for there. Tom Victor, who's another one of uh, the people I know through Twitter. Um, I'll be, I'll be nice and classing as one of my friends um and say that yeah he he wrote for them so i think one of the first things that i really wrote um on sort of a large scale was for vice which was about um avicca strock who was a player that i had on football manager um and after my brother passed away i played a lot of football manager so i wrote i was uh, approached by someone that wrote for or, or was one of the editors at vice and that they'd ask me if i'd write about avicca strock um, and my obsession with him, um, he's obviously not a real player, but uh, wrote, wrote about him for them. And I said, I'll do it if um, I could put in about my brother and what happened with him. And so halfway through, I just, without 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 warning, without any sort of build up towards it, just said that, that my brother passed away. Um, and so, I, you know, once I wrote that, um, a couple of other people asked me if I'd be interested in writing for them, one of which was Joe. And so sort of on a freelance basis wrote a few bits and pieces for joe uh wrote something about um dream team where i interviewed people that had, had uh, appeared in sky one's incredible <laughs> and incredibly ludicrous um football soap um so uh wrote a bit about uh, flags and um, which i love uh different countries national flags uh wrote about roberto baggio's uh, magical kicks which was a computer game well like a, a flash game on the internet that i used to play a lot when i was in it lessons at school um so yeah, I wrote, wrote a lot for Joe since then. I wrote for Set Pieces, which is um, which was Ian McIntosh's website at the time. He's obviously moved on to uh, the Totally Football Show now and and different things around that. Um, Bleacher Report as well. But yeah, Joe, Joe were Joe were really good in the fact that um, I knew I knew a couple of the people, the editors there, and, and they would let me pitch absolute nonsense to them and, and then agree to let me write it and then get paid off the back of it. So uh, yeah. And do you sort of have any? kinds of plans or anything like that for what you want to do with you know with that side of of your life or did you just kind of take it day by day um day by day really i was um really fortunate at the tail end of 2019 to to be invited by twitter to go and uh do a q a with with some people with them um mainly to businesses to see how i like we've touched on built my following from scratch um just through being myself, through through tweets, through stupid jokes, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, different people about how they can get the best out of Twitter and how they can grow their following as well. And following on from that, a couple of businesses came to speak to me about helping them out do uh, with some tweets and with some things around social media. So I do a bit of that here and there. I did that some of that during the World Cup in 2018, and um, possibly 
might do some of that uh, once the Euros go ahead uh, in 2021. Um, it just obviously just depends who's interested. A lot of the time, um, I just tweet because something that I thought of makes me laugh. Um, something that a tweet makes and you know makes me think is funny, and hopefully other people think the same as well. And yeah, like I say, it's just taking it day by day. What whatever happens happens, and if there's stuff to react to, like at the moment, obviously there's not much football going on, but you know, other things are happening around it that you can relate back to football or you can, you know, try and tie in with football. Um, and so there's always something happening that hopefully you can you can react to. And, and uh, yeah, I'll just probably just keep doing that and just see where it goes from there. And one of the things that we've kind of, one of the themes that we've spoken about and one of the things that we've wanted to touch on with a few people is is sort of about social media and its its impact with, with mental health and, and, and vice versa, I suppose. And your Twitter, as you said, there it does come across like that. That it's, you know, it's it's meant to be jovial and it's it's all it's off the cuff, and you don't take things too seriously and don't tweet things that are, you know, controversial or it's 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 there to entertain people. And would we be kind of naive and thinking that, that, you know, because the way that your accounts run, that you don't get any abuse or, you know, negative feedback or that sort of thing? Um. You get you get people that are fed up. Like I probably have um, a poll of probably about I don't know five, six, seven jokes that um, I'll talk about quite often. Dennis Burkamp having a turn on his turn on Nick Ostad disaster as a fluke. Wayne Rooney having one less international goal. You know Milad Mohammadi doing his roly poly throwing. You know a love of dream team, a love of Premier League years, soccer aged. Like a few different things like that, and football manager as well, and people people get a bit annoyed when you talk about the same thing over and over and over again but again like I say it's six or seven things that I'm not that's basically if you think about how many interests that you have how many hobbies that you have seven or eight is probably about right so if I'm tweeting about seven or eight things I'm tweeting about the things that interest me and my hobbies and stuff so people do get a bit fed up and think that you only tweet about one thing say that they don't even follow you maybe their friend that follows you likes it whenever you tweet about football manager so they'll only ever see them retweeting you talking about football manager which gives them the impression that that's all you you talk or tweet about which isn't necessarily true so people people aren't abusive people are just like mis- perhaps misunder- misunderstanding what you're trying to do um i have got abuse in the past people don't obviously people are very precious about their football teams so if you're seen to take the mick out of Liverpool or Manchester United or Arsenal or, or one of the big teams and they have obviously a large following because they're the biggest teams in the country, if you tweet something that they perceive as negative, when essentially it's just a joke and I always say Newcastle is the team that I take the mick out of the most and make the jokes at the most expense of because they're the team that I know the most about and I feel like I can take the, the mickey out of them more than any other team but sometimes people get a bit miffed off about that and there was incidents a few years ago, my pinned tweet on Twitter on my Twitter account has always been um, something to do with the the work that I do around mental health stuff, whether it's a fundraiser that I'm part of, whether it's uh, an article that I've written about um, my brother or, or around mental health, or whether it's uh, the telephone line for the Samaritans or Calm or whoever, that's always at the top of my profile. And so if someone that doesn't follow you reacts negatively to something that you've said about their football team and they go on your profile to see who you are and the first thing that they're presented with is you know, you have this vulnerability around what happened in your personal life with my brother, then they can use that to to try and get under your skin. And that's happened a few times, not for a long time, I'd say probably not for about four or five years. Um, but it but it has happened. And I, I think when that happens, 
sometimes there's that that need to to show them up and and really you know get your own back on them or fire something back at them or screenshot their tweet and and show your followers that like this this negative behavior isn't acceptable but i think if it was to happen now just block and mute them and and hope they they can shout into the void and you're not presenting that negativity to your followers and you're not causing a dog pile onto onto them um and i think they do need to be told perhaps just a quick you know reply to them saying look mate this isn't on you know this is a, a real life thing that affects numerous thousands of people each and every year um but on the whole i get you know not that much. people tell me i'm not funny and you know often i'm i'm you know agree with them but uh <laughs> yeah a lot i think i'm, I'm quite uh lucky in the respect that it doesn't come too often yeah i think i think i agree with you in terms of not giving not giving people the oxygen because that's what they want isn't it i suppose they want that reaction and it's uh it's very very easy to give it to them i suppose yeah i think you've got to be also mindful if if i was to to sort of screenshot their tweet and, and tweet it out to my followers that um i'm presenting that like i'm i'm impacted they're talking about my brother but it's also an, something that affects you know countless other people across the country and across the world and so it's one thing i if i'm not obviously i'll be affected by it because it's my brother and it's quite a difficult situation in what happened but other people aren't as prepared for, to see it as, as i may be and so to shove that in their faces you know unannounced almost could have a negative impact on them as well and you've got i've got to be mindful of that um quite a lot of the time as well so it's not just you know it's not just showing them up it's sort of then you know snowballing that onto somebody else onto somebody else so yeah i said nowadays if it was to happen maybe just a quick reply um to them to say just try and be a bit more sensible and then just mute them or block them or whatever i've become a lot more you know willing to block people now um than i ever used to be so um yeah i think it's just the easiest way to they can shout into the void and if they don't like your tweets and they don't have to see them anymore if you block them it makes it, it should make their life a bit easier as well yeah i agree and I, I, as that kind of interaction about with people made you sort of think differently about the way that you would use twitter maybe the way that you would interact with people i suppose you you don't seem like the type of person who'd be giving abuse out on twitter anyway but would it make you think differently about the way about what you would post in terms of how that could you know impact some of these some of these day um not really not really i never i try not to try not to use profanity on twitter because my my mom reads it and i don't want her to know that i know such words um so i, I don't try try and avoid that I try and make it as you know obviously it's not going to be a pg rated twitter account because but you know try and make it as accessible and, and keep as many people you know entertained as possible sometimes adding a bit of a swear word or something and can make things funnier um sometimes you know it thinks it's necessary because it gets across the aggression or the the um the passion that you perhaps have some for something but um no i think um i don't think anything really like like i say the only thing that i do is probably not present that negativity onto other people and um, people don't really need to see that in the same way that you know people don't need to see you know if i if i see someone that's posting homophobia or, or misogyny or transphobia or, or anything along those lines you don't want to quote tweet it and present that to more people because it might have that negative impact on others so just you know report it or, or whatever um so i try try and be mindful of, of what other people want to see in that respect um 
Not, no, 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 it wouldn't put me off tweeting about, you know, taking the mickey out of a football team or or tweeting about, you know, mental health issues and things like that. Because if, if anybody reacts badly to those things in terms of they think it's ripe to abuse you in return, then that's on them. That shouldn't be for me to change my behaviours around that. It should be for them to change their behaviours around it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you, you you mentioned earlier about the the article you wrote for Joe where you and you you wrote about your brother um who took his own life in in 2014 and you sort of talk about how that article came around did you think that it was an important it was important to write that story and, and write that publicly um yeah i think as soon as sort of when my brother passed away so it was december 2014 um at that time i had no idea how sort of prevalent suicide was and how prevalent it was especially around young men um and so when i when it when it happened it was sort of a big eye-opener um and sort of learning that that it was you know i wasn't wasn't in it alone and i wasn't you know i wasn't the only person going through this there were other people going out there uh, out there that were going through it as well sorry and so i think i only learned that because of what happened with my brother and i think it's important to get that message across without people losing someone that they love and having to find that out um, that way. So I think it was important to, to write it and, and let people sort of know who my brother was and sort of know that he, he, he was like a lot of us are. He liked football, he liked golf, he liked listening to music, going to the pub, um, hanging around with his friends, uh, playing Call of Duty, playing FIFA, what have you. And so I think that resonates with a lot of people that, to me, and it's going to sound naive and it's probably going to sound stupid, but my perception, my, you know, stereotype in my mind of someone that would suffer from depression and possibly, you know, die by suicide was they'd dress in black, they'd be mournful, they'd listen to a lot of the music that I listen to anyway, but they'd listen to sort of, you know, emo music or like Slipknot or what have you. That would, that would be what that stereotypical person was, but that's not true and that's stupid and, you know, in hindsight to, to think that, have that thought process. So I think people needed to to sort of, or I would have, especially if someone else had written this, written this article and what happened to me hadn't happened to me, it would have been an eye-opener for me. So hopefully it would, got that message across to other people about how prevalent it was without them having to to go through it themselves and um yeah it was it was interesting it was one of the first times that i'd written about him in the context of the whole thing was just about my brother it wasn't about football manager and then my brother got mentioned like like i said the vice article was it was literally just typing about writing about my brother and what happened and you know being open and I think from the very moment that it happened it was important to be open I think I followed my parents lead in that regard that they were very open about this is what happened to Simon and this is what we want we're not going to try and brush it under the carpet and pretend it was something else we're not going to you know try and disguise the fact that Simon were obviously having troubles and and this is what happened they were very open and honest and, and fronted up about it basically and said this is what happened so when my parents were like that and obviously it's absolutely I, I can't speak from experience I can only speak from the perspective of losing my brother but from the perspective of losing a son and a child and my brother was the oldest of, of me and my sister and my brother so that must have been extremely difficult for them and the fact that they were brave enough and, and strong enough to present that to the world even if it was only a small circle of friends and family then it get, gives you the the confidence almost to, to be able to to carry that out 
on a wider scale and so yeah I think it was important important to do that and important to be honest with ourselves and be honest about Simon and, and hopefully that article and the subsequent things that me my sister my mum my and dad and my brother's friends have all done around it we've all done separate things on different scales has helped people as well yeah I, I, it's 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 incredibly impressive to be able to to be as 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 you say as open and and brave as as you've been what was that that time like in your life um i say the end of 2014 when when um when your brother died what was what was that like for you and for your for your family um it was christmas so it was especially i think it obviously it's difficult at any time of year um to lose somebody regardless of the circumstances is very difficult i've gone through bereavements with my grandparents and that was at different different stages throughout my teenage years when i was a young teenager you know middle and older and it's difficult all the time to, to lose somebody that you love and then i think whatever however they die whether it's you know you see them gradually get more and more poorly and more ill through something like cancer or, or heart disease or something like that it's all very difficult but this the sort of finality and suddenness of suicide especially at that time of year as well is a difficult one to get your head around so it was especially like with my brother like I say my my stereotype of what somebody that would die by suicide was like was completely off and completely skewed but in my mind Simon wasn't the sort of person that that would do something like that he was he always seemed to be happy and smiley and he was always you know cracking jokes and He's your older brother, and I think speaking as the youngest sibling of three and speaking as the younger brother, I think you look at your brother, uh, perhaps the same with sisters as well. I think, well, I would look at my sister and think the same, but I think as a younger brother with an an older brother, you think that they've got everything sussed out and you think that they've got their way, they found their way in the world. My brother was like nine years older than me, so there's quite a big age gap there. And so I look up to him and he'd, you know, got a mortgage and, you know, he got a son and he'd you know had long-term jobs and he'd been traveling and it it sort of to me felt like he had everything okay and everything was sorted and everything was right so to be met with the fact that perhaps everything wasn't okay with him makes you feel like perhaps you didn't quite have everything figured out in the way that you thought things in the world were, were figured out so it was difficult and I'm like I say with Christmas and you're there with your family as well and my when when my brother passed away, my sister lives um, in Staines, um, so you know West London, just far outside London. She wouldn't like me saying it was in London, but mm-hmm. um, so I went down there like the day. The, so my brother passed away in the early hours of the Sunday morning, and by like two o'clock that day, I was at my sister's house, the opposite end of the country. A couple of days later, my parents who live in Cornwall came over to be at my sister's house as well. And then on Christmas Day, we were all there. And it's like Christmas Day morning, you're looking around the room and, you know, my sister was there with her husband and my niece and my mum and dad were there and I was sat there. And it's like, well, that's four of us, but really we're a family of five and there's one person that should that should be there with us when we're all there, but obviously. And then you sort of think, well, remember why he's not there. And it can be very emotional, very difficult, but it's also... It was also good to have us all together and have us all sort of sharing those memories. We bought some photographs. My mum and dad have shoeboxes full of photographs from, from when me and my sister and my brother were growing up and from when they were younger. So to go through them, find pictures of Simon, 
and just sort of laugh about his hair or the t-shirt he was wearing or like you know it was this holiday where he did this and all laughed together you know you're not laughing at him and you're not laughing at the circumstances that came to pass but you're sharing in those memories with one another and that was useful but um yeah it was it was difficult it's a difficult time of year like I say because you're waiting so long for for funeral arrangements to come through as well because things shut down over Christmas things shut down over New Year so it felt like it it dragged along quite a lot and uh, it was very difficult but um grateful to have to have had you know a family around me at that time and hopefully they'd say that they're the same thing that they were grateful to have me around them as well but yeah and I just played a lot of football manager like I say I just plowed through football manager which I found really helpful to to take my mind off on a a form of escapism um but yeah it, it was just a very very surreal time and looking back I don't think I I took it quite took it all in of what was happening um but yeah, it was extremely difficult uh, time of year. And like, um, I don't really think that there was any warning signs of what happened with him either. Um, so it's not like we could mentally prepare ourselves or, or sort of have that knowledge that we needed to keep an eye out on him. It just completely came out of the blue. And it sounds possibly sounds strange if you've not been through that situation yourself to say that you know you didn't know he was depressed, but when he died by suicide, surely if someone reaches that end point there must have been signs beforehand but I think with only with the benefit of hindsight that I can sort of look back on perhaps the final year of his life and say that there were moments where you know he was perhaps texting me a bit more or he was bringing my mum and dad a bit more or when I when I got to see him he was smiling a bit less or he was you know talking a bit less but at the time it just seemed like perhaps this is a bad day or perhaps this is you know perhaps he does need to just wanted to chat about something or just wanted to talk or whatever but I think it's only a culmination of everything that happened and you piece it all together and then that final piece is him dying by suicide and you get to see the full picture then and say that yeah it's a you know maybe I should have asked more questions but at the time you, you didn't think you had to if that makes sense yeah no it does and, and I think one of the things that we've I think that we've certainly discovered through doing some of these interviews and speaking to people is that uh, people's um, ability to be able to hide things or to mask how they're feeling is is extraordinary, and it's often in in hindsight and and after events and stuff that you're able to look back and, and see how people are really feeling about things. Yeah, I think like I remember going to football matches with I went to watch Pre- he was a Preston supporter which arguably is a worse decision than me being a Newcastle supporter <laughs> especially at the time they were in League One no offense sorry um <laughs> they were in I was League- gonna say that's a big that Johnny <laughs> they were uh, they were in League One and um we, we we went and watched a few matches at the start of that season and you know sometimes he seemed you know really happy and chatty and perhaps much more happy and chatty than he had been you know a long time before and maybe he was looking for more positives because of what he was going through um and so he was looking for more things and wanted to chat more about the things that were making him happy but you think that oh perhaps yeah perhaps he's fine and then those times where you'd be with him and he he wasn't as talkative as he usually was and so it's like oh perhaps this is just a bad day or perhaps you know he's not done anything recently that he wants to talk about or maybe just wants to watch the match that's going on and so it's hard to sort of judge um like I say the only the only reason we're sort of 
you f- you find out that he went through this perhaps was that the um he did end up taking his own life and so it's it is tricky to to know you know to spot those unusual behaviors sometimes and, and you know fi- see those signals and and the flags and stuff that you need to look out for with your friends and family and loved ones yeah absolutely and obviously now um sort of several years later you seem to be able to to talk about it with with quite a lot of clarity and and, and composure. How do you manage to reconcile, or how did you manage to reconcile what you and your family went through? And were there any specific sort of, um, did you speak to anyone professionally? Are there any techniques that you used? You say you, went, you did a lot of football manager, but was there anything <laughs> that you did? Um, for a long time afterwards, I thought I was, you know, I thought things were, were fine. I thought I got a, a grip of things. Um, and then I went down to visit my parents in Cornwall. And this is going to sound one, it's going to sound stupid, and two, um, it's going to make Simon sound stupid, and I'm f- perfectly fine with the latter um, in this circumstance. Mm-hmm. But um, my my brother had a, a teddy bear uh, that was a panda when he was younger. Um, that he always, you know, he moved house to house and you know grew up, obviously. But he always, you know, he never never gave the panda away, never you know sent it back to my mom and dad or what have you. Obviously, when he passed away, he didn't didn't need the panda anymore. Um, arguably, never did, but. Um, so, uh, so when I was with my mum and dad's house uh, in Cornwall, they had the panda set on the a, a table in the landing. And so every morning when I got up, um, went downstairs, I'd walk past the panda, and eventually, you know, it's just got a, got a sort of a grip a grip of me. And and just one night, I was sat with my uh, girlfriend and just burst into tears. And she's like, "What's wrong?" And I said, "I just, you know, things aren't right, and I just need to go and speak to somebody about it." I think, and that was probably about August time. So nine months eight months after Simon had passed away and so I went on to a one of the ridiculous waiting lists that you get put on went to the doctors and said you know, I need to I had, an ear, I had an ear infection as well so that was a good excuse for me to go to the doctors and said got my ears checked out and said while, while I'm here I just need to say I need to speak to a grief counsellor or somebody that um that will help me get to grips with what's going on and so he asked a few questions and I explained what had happened and then get a telephone call and say from a sort of triage service that say, look, what what is it that's happened? So say, look, my brother my brother died in December last year, and and I need to go and speak to a counsellor. And so I waited another few months. And uh, if you've ever been through this process, I'm sure uh, anyone listening knows how arduous it can be sometimes, and it makes you think that it's you know it makes sometimes it makes sense that people can't haven't got the time don't think they've got the time to wait for these appointments to come through um and eventually i went to to speak to a grief counselor and the first thing he he said why are you here and um i just said my brother died by suicide and just burst into tears and he basically asked you know what 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 happened why why do you think it happened i said i don't don't know why it happened he didn't didn't tell anyone no one knew and i think basically all i needed to do was just basically tell somebody that was removed from my life and removed from my family's life and from Simon's life completely what had happened uh, without fear of them saying, you know, without fear of them interjecting with, it's going to sound quite rude in terms of the relationship with family and friends and stuff, but without them interjecting with their own experiences of Simon's life or without them, you know, saying what Simon might have thought about things or what have you I just needed to tell somebody what had happened and then say that I didn't know why it had happened and so I think it probably took a couple of sessions with this counsellor for him to say look you'll you'll never know 
why it happened. The only person that can explain to you why it has happened is no longer here. And it's sort of come into that acceptance that you'll never know. And it's it's a difficult thing to have to accept and say, look, I don't know why it happened, but I'll never know. And I'm okay with never knowing because you'll, I don't think I'll ever be okay with never knowing, but it's just sort of accepting that you'll never know how and why and it happened. And so it's difficult. And I think now, you know, every so often you do, my mind does wonder as to why it happened and if there's anything that I could have done, there's anything anybody could have done to have, have helped him and, and for this situation and to have not have occurred. But, uh, you know, it is a long, long process. And, and I would say if anyone is struggling in, in the same situation that I was in, whether somebody that they, they know and love, not necessarily through suicide, but through any sort of bereavement is struggling with it, I would really recommend... Obviously, I haven't sold it very well with saying that there's long waiting lists, but I would strongly recommend anybody trying to reach out to to speak to some sort of counsellor or grief counselling just to try and go through those stages of grief um, as well. But as I I think the the stages of grief thing is is an odd one as well, because I think if you look at it, there's like anger, and I've never been angry about Simon passing away. and I've never been, you know, some of them, but there was that acceptance at the end I think everybody needs to reach that point whether they go through the ones beforehand um it is never near here or there but once they reach that acceptance stage I think things do become a lot easier it's just it might take a long time for people to reach it but I would strongly recommend anybody that's you know going through a, a difficult time and I know where we are with with how stretched the NHS is at the moment especially with what we're seeing in in uh, in terms of you know the pandemic that's been ongoing they are in a difficult place but being able to reach out and speak to a professional um i found really beneficial yeah i i'd echo that sentiment johnny i I, you know i think even as a first step i think just sticking your hand up and saying i'm struggling with something whatever it might be um and almost relieving that from yourself so it's not just you you know you've shared that with somebody else i think that that in itself can help um just going back to the article that you wrote johnny obviously i i think um i think suicide is a particularly difficult topic i think for a lot of people to speak about and and even you know us doing this interview with you now that it asking the questions and stuff can be can be quite hard it's quite a difficult topic to open up on what was the reaction like to the the article that you wrote um, I think the uh, reaction that I've had to anything has always been quite, it's, it's, it's strange to say it's been positive because obviously the subject matter isn't a, a thing that you want people to react positively to, if that makes sense. But I think people have always been understanding and, and positive about it. And it's always, again, the language that we have to use around it is, is quite difficult, but it's always nice and good to hear, even though it's never nice and good to hear that someone's struggling, but it's it's good to hear that what you've written or what you've said or whether it's a tweet or whether it's, you know, going on the television or doing a podcast or what have you. It's always beneficial from my side and good to hear from my side that those things have helped people and those things have made people perhaps reach out to, you know, Calm or the Samaritans or, or gone to their GP or what have you or whether they've reached out to a friend and that they, they've been worried and concerned about or who's been exhibiting behaviours that perhaps they've been worried about they've made those steps and, and that's a really positive thing to hear. Like you say, it's a difficult subject to talk about and it's a difficult subject to broach conversation about. Um, 
and whether you know people when I've when I've gone through it and I'm obviously quite open about what happened with Simon but I think people are always want to tiptoe a bit around it mm. um and it's not you don't go in like a you know to use another cliche bull in a china shop and just ask the most ridiculous questions um but I think people I'm quite happy to sit and have a conversation about it and what happened I'm sure there's other people out there that have gone through the same thing that have the same opinion as well but it's about being tactful and it's about you know being polite and honest about with, with those people um but yeah the, the the reaction that i've always got has, has always been to whatever i've done around it has always always been a very positive one and people whether they've gone through it or whether they're worried about it or or what have you um people always react quite well to it so hopefully i've always get the message across well and hopefully i always get the you know the language and the the, um, the tone of things very across well as well, and I never want to downplay suicide or somebody's experiences um, at all. I never want anybody to read something that I've written and say it didn't, you know, it made them feel worse or, or, or anything like that. Um, I always try and I, I can only speak from my experience, um, and so hopefully um, it does it does find its audience and it does help people as well. Yeah, no, I think it does absolutely, Johnny. And I think, as you say, the more that people are able to do those, those take those brave steps like you've done, then the, the easier those conversations will become. We like football. Me and yourself like football. People might skitter us for supporting terrible teams, <laughs> but football is, you know, massive in our lives. Um, and last year, you t- or recently, I think, possibly last year, uh, you tweeted about the the England the royal team talk. Yeah. Um. About how, um. You know, England's manager Gareth Southgate's on telly, on a national channel discussing his mental health. Um. How important do you think that step was in highlighting those issues? It's re- I think it's really important to have those sort of um. Fuck. What's the word I'm trying to find here? <laughs> Uh, people that you look up to, you know, the people that are well regarded and, and high profile people talking about it because they're sort of, they have this power and influence, especially with football. See Gareth Southgate, who's obviously the coach of the national football team, going on television and opening up about the difficulties that he had, especially around, you know, Euro 96 and things like that. He wasn't crucified in quite the same way that we've seen with certain footballers afterwards because I think people recognise that he stepped up and took that penalty when many others wouldn't. And I think you saw the way that David Beckham... Well, I assume that you saw the way David Beckham was treated after France 98 when he got sent off. You see the way that Rooney got treated when he got sent off and things like that. And you see the the way that it must be really difficult for these footballers to sort of reconcile that often they're just trying their best in very trying difficult circumstances with a lot of pressure on them and so to see Gareth Southgate talk about that and I think Thierry Omri was on there Peter Crouch was on there Peter Crouch talked about something that I think as men we don't talk about quite enough which is um, in terms of our appearance and how people can make us feel about our appearance whether you know you're too short you're too fat you're too you know too tall too you know, ugly, what have you. I think Peter Crouch opened up quite a lot about that. And I think that's really good as well to see from someone that's obviously experienced 
you know, 50, 50, 60,000 people taking the mick out of how you look. And that's something that he can't help. And then the day, I think he's actually grown into his looks quite well, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I think he looks all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he dresses very well. But I think to hit, hit, see him open up about that, which is something beyond, you know, it's still to do with our mental health and it can still make you feel absolutely awful and it can play on your mind and it can snowball in your head. But to see him go on there and open up about it. Like I say, football is a high-profile people and football is a high-profile sport and it's watched by millions of people each and every week all up and down the country. When you had Scotland and, and Wales and Northern Ireland and then expanding to Europe and stuff, the number of people that are watching these footballers play is incredible. And so when they're using that platform and that influence that they have over those people to be so open and honest about their mental health troubles and what difficulties and experiences they've had it's obviously going to have a knock-on effect from you know if I see you know if I was to see I've been extremely lucky that I've met England footballers I've met other footballers as well so I've spent time quite recently with someone like Troy Deeney Watford's captain and seeing him open up about the mental health struggles that he's had and stuff that he's had around bereavement and you know he was in prison and stuff when he was younger a younger footballer and things like that see him who you would say was a very stereotypical blokey manly man you know he's big he's strong he's got tattoos he's tough you know he doesn't take no nonsense from anybody and to see him make himself vulnerable and talk about things makes me think if someone like that i'm not particularly masculine person if i see someone like that be so open and honest about his mental health and the struggles that he's been through then i can probably do that as well and he's got much more well I think, you know, it feels like he's got much more to lose being open and honest about his mental health than I have. And so hopefully I can then take those brave steps that he said and be honest when I need to be honest with people and say that I'm struggling as well. I think to have somebody like Prince William in there as well, and I know not everyone's a fan of the royal family for for different reasons, but to see someone that's perhaps one day going to, you know, be the monarch of this country, be open and about the bereavement that he suffered when he was younger and how that impacted on his mental health and his relationship with his family and his brother and things like that. That makes you as well feel like you can do it. And football has this tremendous power and influence over people in this country. And I think especially, you know, you look at a crowd and you look at a football crowd and it's still particularly male-dominated. And men seem to be the ones that struggle more with opening up and being honest about difficulties that they're going through, whether that's, you know, jobs, finances, relationships, you know, family, sexuality, things like that. They've got a, you know, football using their time and using their voice and, and platform, football as a whole as a sport and football as individuals can really give that power over to the fans as well. And they'll hopefully use their voices and use the time We've seen it this season with, well, the season just gone. We don't really know what's happening with the season at the moment, but <laughs> we've seen we've seen Heads Up, which is the Prince's charity, um, become involved with the FA Cup, becoming involved with England internationals. You know, on the football league shirts, you know, tram- in the back of Tramier shirts, their names and numbers are sponsored by Mind, and so people at the match will see that on the back of the shirts. You've seen um, Calm's logos been on the back of. Um, football programs they've been on the you know sleeves of different shirts and stuff so all these things people charities and and 
organizations are using the power of football to get their message across to to people that need to hear it and i think i don't think there's anything else in this country that quite has the same reach um and platform as football so to see football give itself over to that side of things and to see footballers talk about their mental health is a really uh, powerful thing and hopefully it's the same i think it's the same in in different you know other other things as well rugby are especially good at, at you know being open and honest about their mental health and, and signposting people to charities and organizations cricket are quite good at it as well and then i think in terms of music you've got someone like Stormzy, who's one of the biggest artists in this country at the moment, has spoken openly about his depression and anxiety as well. And I think that really helps people who look up to these footballers, look up to these musicians or or rugby players or cricketers or actors or whoever's opening up and say, look, if they're struggling with what they're going through and hopefully, you know, that will trickle down to to somebody else to be opening as well. And yeah, you are completely right as well. And I mean, it is amazing how far and wide football can reach and you know even just looking at you know Troy Deeney's not the most known player in the league but listening to someone come out and talk about their mental health is is very very you know kind of rewarding in a way to yourself if you're going through something similar um and I've I think the situation is it is it's improving in in football you know in the way that we can open up um, to each other, and it is becoming a little bit better. Um, you had mentioned earlier about uh, the Calm Zone. Um, you're actually an ambassador for the Calm Zone. Yeah. Um, do you want to give us a, a, just in case people don't know what that is, just a brief overview of what that is and, and what sort of things they do? Yeah, so Calm are a, um, a mental health charity, a suicide prevention charity, and are sort of they're mainly focused on men's mental health um not not solely focused on it but i think it's one of their big drivers in the fact that you know 75 percent of suicides um in england and wales are from men so it's obviously like quite a big proportion of them quite an alarming proportion of them are from men and and suicide is the biggest killer of men under the age of 45 in this country and so i think they've got a real commitment to try and drive that down as much as possible try and try and get people talking and try and get people to sort of be more open and honest about the difficulties that they're going through and we've we've touched on throughout this podcast that men for some reason for whatever reason whether it's a excuse me whether it's a hangover from sort of the stiff upper lip or, or, or the stereotypical masculine thing that you don't talk about your problems because it makes you seem like less of a man or whether it makes you know typically historically men were the ones that went out to work so they didn't have time to be depressed because the family wouldn't eat or what have you whether it's still a hangover from that or whether it's the traditional values that have perhaps been passed down from our parents generation or our grandparents generation that we just don't speak about our mental health issues there's a lot of questions about why it's you know impacting men much more than it is women and so they're trying to open that up that conversation through a number of different means and whether it's you know they did something just last week where you know they had uh, something on instagram where they had different artists different musicians different djs and comedians taking turns to talk to do you know sets or or play some songs or chat to the camera about mental health issues and hopefully that reached an audience but they run um, a telephone service from 5 p.m till midnight every single day um 
0800-585858 and they also run a web chat on the calmzone.net and so it gives people the opportunity in the same way that the Samaritans do in the same way that mine do and Papyrus do and numerous other mental health charities they give the people that option to ring this telephone number free of charge they can be completely anonymous and completely confidential and talk about whatever it is that they're going through whether they don't feel comfortable talking to their friends and family about it whether their friends and family just aren't available at that particular time they haven't managed to get an appointment with mental health services through the nhs or managed to get a appointment with their GP to discuss it. Karma are always there to be able to talk to and answer any queries or any problems or, or listen to whatever it is that you're going through and hopefully, you know, sort of hammer out some something that will get you through until you are able to speak to a professional, you are able to, to overcome it and manage your mental health a little bit better. And so I became, I'd never heard of them before um, my brother passed away. They were quite a small charity at that time. And so my dad found them um, just through a quick Google search of like mental health, suicide prevention, men. I don't know what search terms he used. I can just I know in my dad's rudimentary use of the Internet, I can just assume it was men, mental health, men and suicide prevention. <laughs> but he came across Calm. And so we donated some money to them. And then I started doing some fundraisers for them and things like that. And so, again, we're touching on earlier in the conversation where we we're talking about how important it is to to write what I went through because people might not know about that unless they go through it themselves. I think it's important to talk about these charities so people don't only discover them after they lose a loved one or whether they reach crisis point and Google things. They're, it's always in the back of their minds to whether they need it or whether their friends or family need it or whether they want to fundraise for it or whether they want to fundraise for it through work or what have you. Hopefully by talking about the, the work that they do a bit more that they can... Um, always have the knowledge of who calm are um and make use of their services or, or raise money for them or what have you and so as an um, as an ambassador for that what it sounds like a, a really really good charity um what does that entail for yourself um it means i get to go and do lots of quite fun and interesting things um through that i got to go and have christmas dinner with the england team at um, st george's park i got to go and meet prince william and troy deeney like we touched on just before um got to be part of an amazing um, awareness raising campaign where we made um 84 different uh, statues out of masking out of uh, really high grade sellotape that went on top of the this morning studio each one represented a real person lost to suicide so i made one obviously that represented my brother um so we got to do good fun awareness raising things like that but it's also about getting the message across by coming on here and, and chatting to you guys about what it is calm do going on twitter and tweeting about the services available to people it's just always being an ambassador for calm is about being you know not embodying what it is that calm want to get across but always sort of living by that sort of mantra of what karma trying to do and, and being prepared to talk about it whenever you feel comfortable um there's a bunch of great ambassadors there there's um professor green's one um frank turner's one um ramesh ranganathan's one um there's a whole bunch of, of really good people that are doing amazing things in their different fields of, of trying to get people to to be more comfortable about talking about their mental health um, and sharing the message of what it is that Karma are doing um, through their web chat service, through their um, telephone service, through their general work um, 
through the government, through offering statistics and offering avenues to people that may be going through crisis or struggling. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's a real, real privilege to, to be an ambassador for them and get to go and talk to people about the great work that Calm do. Um, and obviously it comes from a very personal um, point in my in my life almost that, um, so I'm very uh, passionate about what it is that Calm do and um, having lost my own brother through it. So yeah, just always in whatever way that I can trying to, trying to help them out and trying to get their message across and let people know that they're there and they're willing to help um, or help people manage what they're going through. Welcome back. You're listening to the Man Marketing Podcast. I've still got Ryan and Ant with me today. A lot of different themes that came up there from from Johnny's interview. One thing that I thought was particularly interesting was that use of language. So Johnny referred to his brother's death as dying by suicide, and we hear a lot of people say committed suicide, which is obviously a a throwback to when it was illegal, which seems absolutely mad when you think about it. Ryan, that was obviously something you picked up on as well when we were talking before. And how important do you think the sort of semantics around it are in terms of getting people to a point where they do feel more comfortable talking about it. Yeah, I um, I must admit I didn't realise that until you brought it up recently, Dan. And when, when I listened back to it, it, it sounded really obvious to me. And uh, to be fair, I sort of used that a little bit recently in my own personal life. Um, it resonated with, with me quite a bit. So somebody I, I know unfortunately died by suicide recently and we were at the funeral this week. And I tried to be careful with my language, which is something I never would have probably thought to do and uh, not because I wouldn't want to be careful around it it just would have been one of those sort of ignorant things that you, that you just don't know about so for me that really resonated with me and also what he was saying around acceptance of it so I think the problem we have with suicide is it, it leaves more questions than answers and that's the hardest part of why I think people will always struggle with grief for the rest of their lives when they lose somebody through suicide because they're just always searching for an answer that they'll never get. Um, so what one thing Johnny said which really impressed me was that he, he didn't feel angry, which is normally the number one feeling when you lose somebody to suicide, is the anger of, of why and what could I have done and could, it, could we do anything differently. And he sort of said that it's allowed him to accept his brother's death. He's still obviously grieving and, and it's a huge loss for him, but it, the lack of anger around it, made that process a little bit easier, probably in the same way as if somebody died um, who's been suffering with an illness, there's a bit more of an acceptance because you've had time to prepare and you know the, the physical reason why. Not knowing why seems, seems to be the hardest thing. Um, so yeah, his use, of, his use of language I thought was, was very important and for anybody listening who's going through it, I think there's a huge lesson in there as well to, to maybe not focus all your energy on trying to understand why they've done it but just try to help yourself realise that they're no longer here and there's got to be a level of acceptance for you to move on with, with your life. I think that's really important, I think, in terms of the use of language, particularly when you look at the, the, the phrase committed suicide. So when you talk about other illnesses there, right, what I think is interesting is that you would see somebody would say they died from cancer or they died from a heart attack or they yeah. died from whatever the illness or affliction might be. But the use of language is often they committed suicide, so it was done to themselves, as opposed to treating mental health and mental illness as an illness in the same way a physical illness is treated. 
So that's why I just thought it was really the really good thing that Johnny was very um he, he was very consistent with his use of language. He died from suicide, he died by suicide. Treat the mental illness in the same way a physical illness is treated. That they died from this illness and the illness was whatever it might be, depression, anxiety, <clears throat> whatever you want to call it. And they were a victim of that. They didn't do it to themselves. They wouldn't choose to be in that way. And I think when you start to think about it like that, it might help with the way people sort of start Change of perception, it. doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, massively. I think we've got that now in society at the moment. And we've got a lot of issues that are coming up. And there is this shift to where we need to use language in a, in a completely yeah. different way. Yeah. So this is important when we, when we hear these interviews. We understand the language that is used. And it'll... It'll be ingrained in, in people going forward and I think that it's one of the most important things and it takes a bit of time getting used to and it takes a bit of time to come into a natural way of talking but it will come in and if we continue to, to highlight it and, and, and say look this is how we'd like to move forward with, with this use of language and it's absolutely great. Yeah, I think people can often underestimate the power of words and the power of language and, and the context that they come in as well. And I think it'll make it easier for people, you know, if, if they're, they're asking about stuff, if they're, they're more comfortable with the language that's used and, you know, obviously we're, we're trying to make it seem that it's not a, a taboo thing, it's not something that needs to be not spoken about, so when we do speak about it, let's use the language that's comfortable and, and it'll make everything a bit easier for, for people going through it, like Ryan said, and the people surrounded. Yeah, absolutely. Just on that, he was very mindful on not only how he spoke to us, um, but how he used language on social media as well. Because he said that if somebody made a sort of derogatory comment around suicide or mental health, that he would just block and mute them rather than retweet it and, and let that person then get, uh, I think he described it as a dog pile. Um, because if you retweet that comment because you want somebody to face the backlash, You've got vulnerable people on your timeline there and we reminded about the thing they've said to you. So he was very mindful in general, which I thought was... Yeah, you know, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's been he's clearly interested in, yeah. in, in the subject and it's not for him just uh, an attachment because of what happened to his brother. I think he's very mindful for others as well, yeah. as well, his own personal experience. What I think he does really well, which I, I think is something we could all learn from, is that he's not uncomfortable talking about the subject. So I think what he's fully aware of is that Suicide is a difficult thing for people to talk about a lot of the time. It, it's, it can be quite a hard way even just to say it. Yeah. I think like cancer, it's the same thing where people have a difficulty even yeah. saying the word. So I think it's one of those things where he's, he's aware that we need to get comfortable with saying the word and talking about the subject because it's there and it exists and the only way we can deal with it is by dealing with it head on. But he's also aware that some people are at a different position in their, be it a grieving process, be it uh, their own personal process, wherever it might be. So it's not incumbent on you to put that on them, but to still approach the subject with the respect that it deserves. One thing that, you, that you've mentioned a few times, Ant, when we've been discussing uh, this episode, was about the way that Johnny used video games as like a distraction and a way of kind of getting through things. We talked a lot about Football Manager during the, the interview. We've got some stuff from that that we've cut out of the episode that we'll be putting out for a little special on, on Wednesday on YouTube because it's Johnny's history of football manager is quite extraordinary to be perfectly honest with you um, but aside from that he uses video games quite widely in terms of A remembering his brother and B using it as part of his grieving process yeah so on Twitter he had a, a thanks to video games hashtag recently and um, it was a big thread and it was it was going into how his brother introduced him to video games and, and how he I 
think Raheem Mayfrey, I think he, he got introduced to the uh, championship manager and, and just how that kind of changed and how they always kept in touch and no matter where they were in the country, they were always playing video games. And I think video games, get a, they can get a bit of a bad rep. It's yeah. often seen as, you know, it's a bit lazy. And, uh, but if you think about it, watching the telly is kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always learning points with video games and I think they have become a little bit more educational as they've gone on. It might not be openly known mm-hmm. that they are educational, but, you know, you look at, I think, like Minecraft and... and Video games like that, and even Football Manager, you know, it's about analysing statistics, and and you know, at least you'll be learning how to do be, yeah. be a football manager, really. Well, there's also like a technical element to it as well, as there being, you know, IT literate like, is yeah, important, I mean, so it gives you those type of skills even, as well. Even installing the game is quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So hard as the years have gone yeah, on. Exactly. Put a disc in the what even is Steam? I don't know, but I hate it. <laughs> But yeah, I, th- I think it was really, it was really touching the, the the thread, and it was, you know, the link between brothers as well. And mm-hmm. I've got a brother who's older. You've got a brother who's younger. You've got a, a sister to two sisters. So you realise how how those things can kind of bring you together. And when you're when you're young, they're kind of like your first friends. Yeah. So it, it, it's really really sweet to hear that you know they have this big strong relationship and even though they go apart from it in different parts of the country they were still together and he'd still get online i think he he, he tweeted and said oh um, my brother got surround sound so he could play call of duty better but it never really made much difference but that's what he said his first use of twitter was he was tweeting his kill sprees or whatever it was yeah, on yeah. call of duty so i think it's 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 almost like the gaming community is massive but it's also one of those things that's kind of looked down upon by people because it's seen as like either childish or as you say lazy or whatever those things are and you think if that's what people's escapism is if that's what you use at the end of the day to switch off then then that's what it is and that's what people need to do I don't know if either of you have ever seen House of Cards you know the, the Netflix series with Kevin Spacey in it uh, yeah I watched it until he was in the news and I was kind of like oh, I'll go back to it, but I watched the first three or four series so he always plays video games doesn't he plays Call yeah. of Duty and so yeah. he puts headphones in with really loud music doesn't yeah. he and then plays Call of Duty and it's like even though that's like a TV programme he's quite a questionable character seems on and off the screen but still he, it, it, it shows that like there will be people in all kinds of positions and they need that release at the end of the day I know personally for me I play FIFA sometimes I might only play for like 45 minutes but I just need to come in and I just need my brain to just have to concentrate on something that's less stressful than the world. Yeah. And that's what gaming can be. Um, to kind of move the conversation on, one of the, the things we put in our theme was about spotting signs, which is easier said than done, particularly with suicides. And Johnny said that if you'd known Simon, his brother, you would have thought he's not the type of person that would end up dying by suicide, he was a normal lad, he liked football, he liked gaming, he liked going to pub with his mates, and for him there was almost, he didn't feel like there was any obvious warning signs, but then when he kind of reflected on it, he was like, well maybe there was days when he was like this, or maybe there was days like that, and it's easy to see how you could just go, oh they're just having a shit day, or they're just having this happening to them, and he said, his piece of advice was about if something feels off, then ask the question, and I think that's something the three of us have certainly been having done these interviews has been wary of is that that real thing of asking if someone's okay and then asking again that's really important and we were in the pub the other night weren't we and we were talking about this type of thing and I think for fellas it's dead easy isn't it to just go you're right, mate 
yeah, Sam, right, move on. Did you see the Chelsea match last night? Okay, no, no. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know for you fellas, if you had any thoughts on that and this, how important that type of thing is in terms of asking your mates. Uh, yeah, I think um, everybody in this day and age is quite sort of concerned about offending people. And if you turn around to somebody and say, hey mate, are you okay? Or are you considering this? Or I'm worried about you. There's probably a defensive war that they'll put up and they'll be like almost offended by you asking, but they may be inside begging you to have asked them. And then you sort of recoil a bit and you go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I, I just thought you looked a bit off or you didn't seem all right. But I'd, you'd rather piss them off by asking the question and it turned out to be nothing than not ask it for fear of scaring them or putting them off. And there was something going on. And you're not going to lose a friend over asking them if you've spotted signs or you can say and so I'd, I'd say just always ask the question as you say ask it again mm-hmm. ask it again I'd, you don't want to get into like a goodwill hunting scene where you're just going to keep asking until they break down but uh, it, it's it's important that as you say that it's it's you're up and down aren't you throughout different days so for example if I was on the phone to you on a Wednesday Dan and you had a bad day and I was worried about you but I didn't get to see you till the Friday and that's when I asked you and you're having a really good day you might on Friday not even be thinking about approaching that topic, but what happened on Wednesday still exists within. Mm. So it's like you're never in a fluid, so you're always in a fluid state of mind, aren't you? It's always constantly changing. So I think asking on a regular basis, checking up with your friends, starting your Mondays in the group text with how, how are we all, we had a good weekend. Those are the things I think the more you ask, the more you'll see patterns in people's behaviour and you'll see patterns in their attitude and it's easier to then determine when something's off. Well, I think I, I we spoke about it in the last episode, didn't we? And I yeah. said, you know, we, it shows that you care. And I think that's what people appreciate is the fact that you actually care about what, yeah. They're, yeah. what they're talking about. And then, look, if, if you ask them and they say, oh, no, I'm all right, maybe just ask them, how is it in your job or, or, yeah. or whatever. You don't have to be so formal about how's things going on. And yeah. Oh, how's that thing you were talking about yeah, the other day? Yeah. And, and it, it breaks down barriers, like Ryan said. You, People put up a wall, I've done it. People ask me, I'm, and I'm fine, I'm, I'm all right. And, but it's a soft wall. It's like a bouncy castle, you just bring it down. Like, it's, not, it's, it's, not a, it's not a big, hard, solid wall. It, it's like some minute set pieces. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's one of them. It's, you've got to just keep asking. And, and I think there's also spotting the signs. For me, the more you know those people, the easier it will be to spot the signs. I think when, when you get good, I'm going in some training and, and work and he said, oh, look, there's these signs that we might be struggling. And I was like, I could feel like that on any day of the week and I'd be all right. And it, it, it's kind of like, well, you need to know the person as well first. Yeah. You couldn't go up, personally, I don't think you could go up to a stranger and spot it straight away. Yeah. But you'd, if you know them and you go, I don't really feel like you're being not as normal, but yourself, basically. Yeah. So. Normally you know, don't yeah, you? Know, the biggest one for me, though, sorry to cut question, I'm very recently, just while I mind, when Danny forgot his phone last week, <laughs> and me and Pop were, like, texting, like, is he okay? Like, you hadn't texted by 10 in the morning, and we literally flipped out, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. You messaged Sophie, I was like, he's, he's always messaging us, why hasn't he messaged us? We know he's fine, but, like, we just went nuts that morning. So like, you, you'd literally dropped your phone down the couch or something. <laughs> <laughs> lost our shit. But it, it's, it's good that we, yeah, yeah. we know that you text about the podcast most Mondays, because that's when we were, it wasn't Monday, was it? I think so, yeah. And you know, an episode of Yeah, Tuesday. Tuesday or something. So, um, yeah, it was just made me laugh. I you won't listen, lads. I've just 
played off the top. I'm just a visual But I think I think that's I think that it, that's correct. You, you, you know your mates. Yeah. You spend a lot of time with people. Well, even your work colleagues as well. I mean, you spend you probably spend more time with your work colleagues than the people you give it out. Let's be honest. Mm. You know, forty odd weeks a year you're in, in work. So even there, you can spot it. It's a big thing in, in work. You know, obviously some places deal with like difficult topics, and um, you, can, you can't not hide from it really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what our training was about. But when I was sitting there, I was like. It's fine, but this isn't like all the signs. This isn't like, yeah. oh, you've ticked these boxes, so there must be something wrong. It yeah. could just be a bit different. So it, it's more personal. So if you get to know them a little bit more personally, then you'll be able to spot it a bit better from, from, from my point of view. Um, and I think that's that's what needs to happen. I think we need to be a little bit more aware. There might not be something going on. It might not be anything big. I'm not saying that you know there's going to be a big big issue. Yeah. And, you know, mentally, it might just be that the... It's a gut instinct thing yeah, a lot of the time, isn't it? Imagine people shattered. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's one of those things where, as we've said before, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is thinking of going outside and, and, and killing themselves or mm-hmm. that they're having a really manic state or they're having a breakdown. It might just be they're having a really shit week or a really shit day and that still needs, that would still be nice for them for that to be addressed. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, the, 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 I think a lot of the time, and, and, and we've spoken about this a few times, um, I don't even know if it was on the podcast or not, but we've spoken about, there's a big issue, I think, in, in modern day society about comparing your issues with other people's issues and people feeling like, oh, well, I, you know, I can, I've got a normal life and I, I don't, shouldn't, don't have the right to complain about things. And I think don't think that's healthy for anybody, whether you're in a, a state of good mental health or a state of ill mental health. I think... If you're having a bad day or a shit time, you're feeling about something, then just express it because those feelings can manifest into something bigger. So talk about them, even if, even if you think it's trivial. Tell someone they might go, "Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it, mate. It's just one of them things." And then you might go, "Yeah, there's no point in worrying about that." And then and then that solved that issue. Verbalise. Also, equally, if you're feeling good, tell people. Yeah. <laughs> tell people be happy. Go and go and smile at people. Go and it goes a long way. Go and be happy. Go and be positive around people. Yeah. I think, or oh, I'll rein it in because I'm. British and I'm a man and I need to not yeah, make a yeah. big show off. It's not showing off. If you're happy, go and make, go yeah. and tell a joke and make someone else happy as yeah. well. And that it just goes such a long way. You know when those people walk into a room and they light up the place and you're yeah. like, I, I want to be around them. I want to get around them because the yeah. vibe's pretty good. Yeah. Come and do that as well. So equally, yeah. do both things. Don't worry about anything else. Just yeah. go and enjoy yourself as well if you can. Yeah. And then if you're struggling, go and tell someone. And that could equally coming in there with that positive attitude could share somebody up who's yeah. having a bad day. You can change the whole thing. Like we did an interview the other week. I wasn't feeling that great. And I think we spoke to it was Isla Buchanan who we've got coming up in a few series. And just speaking to it, I don't know what it was. It might have been the accent or something, but it, it changed my, yeah. my evening. And I was like, well, I was in a movie before. How's that gone? It was like a big cloud. It just like, yeah. moved away. Yeah. You know, I think we've all experienced that with doing yeah. the podcast. Sometimes you get to the end of the day and you're knackered and you think, I've got to sit down for two hours and do this interview and it might be quite tiring and I'm quite draining and then you get on there with someone who's got like a really good energy about them and you just, and you and then by the time you come off it you're absolutely flying and you're yeah. just like that was and like it reminds exactly why you're doing it. So I think that type of thing's important. I think one other thing that was that was interesting to to note and I think important to note was Johnny did say that it, after six months or so he had to phone up his doctor and yeah. went to his doctor about an infection and then asked about something else. And often that might be the window to be like, well, I'm going in for this thing anyway, so I'll ask. Yeah. Maybe people might go, well, it's only this I'm asking about, so I won't waste their time, sort of thing. So it is important that 
I do that quite a lot actually. Just go in for like one thing because it's always on them screens, isn't it? I'll just come for one thing and then I'm like, why the two things? How many is that? But yeah, it's, I think that's that's important to note, isn't it? That if you do need that professional help, because it's all it, it, you know, a lot of this sort of stuff is peer to peer kind of stuff can help. But there is a point where it goes beyond that, and if you do need that professional help, it is available for you. As Johnny did state, at the moment, the current way that it works is that there is waiting lists and things like that, but it shouldn't let you put you off, because you might think, oh, I'm going to have to wait six months, I don't know how I feel then, just do it, stick your name on a list. Six months, as I've started today. Yeah, if you don't need it in six months, then you can cancel it, that's fine. In the meantime, for over six months, there's there's a whole load of resources, and like I said before, it might not fit into one box for you. But keep looking through and find the ones that you want. It's like picking out your clothes in the morning. Yeah. I'm not going to wear the same as someone else because you know I don't fit into their clothes. So just pick the pick the the stuff that you want. Pick the right yeah. size, the right fit for you. Oh, this works. This doesn't. So I'll get rid of that. And, and make that step. Yeah. Speak for your own mentality, isn't it? He said as well. Um, speaking to somebody from sort of the outside looking in was easier because you think of suicide. Him, his sister, his mum and dad, family, friends, his his brother's uh, partner. They all, they all would have been asking the same questions. But suddenly someone from outside has gone, have you looked at it in this way or help yourself in this way? And while you need to be there to support your family and they'll support you, it is important to, to get a professional's perspective on it. One thing I want to ask you too, it's a bit different for me because I've got two older sisters and you get all the nice things that come with having sisters, which is they sort of birthday presents that tend to be a little bit more thoughtful than than fellas do just a different experience but you've both got brothers Danny I'd say you're quite different to, to your brother Bob. I'd say you're probably a bit more similar to yours than Danny is to his but both different you're, you've obviously got an older brother yours is younger how comfortable have you been growing up speaking to your brothers bear in mind Johnny had a brother and yeah, yeah. spot the signs like um, it's not easy to know your family as well as you think you know them I don't think do you know what it, do you know what it, what it is? So I come from a household where we're very much encouraged to be who we are, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So my mum and my dad have always, from a young age, have encouraged you to just like my dad's always been one of those people where he's like, don't worry about what other people think about you. Yeah, just be yourself. My mum is kind of it worries a lot about what people think about it, but she's very much her own person and my dad's very encouraging of just being like, well, don't worry about what other people think about you because mm. you can only be you. So we've always had that background. So my brother and I have both got very distinctive personalities in terms of we're quite comfortable expressing ourselves and who we are. In terms of our own relationship, we've always been close. There was a period when we were both, well, he was at like sort of late teens and I was in the early 20s and I was at uni and coming back there was a bit of friction, but I think that was just an age thing, to be honest with you, because he was kind of becoming an adult, and I just become an adult, and we were kind of bouncing yeah. off one another. When it got to the point where we were old enough to have like an adult relationship, so when he was like, I'd say 18, 19, 20, 21, and I was like 23, 24, 25, and we can like go out together, and like it becomes more of an adult relationship. Yeah. It went back to being how we were when we were kids, so we just we get on. I don't speak to him every day, but whenever I see him, it's like he just goes straight back into it. You both met my brother. He's, he's lovely. He's, he's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, 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 I always say our Mark is the nicest person. I He's the loveliest fella that I know. He's, he's, he's just such a genuine guy. So, yeah, in terms of speaking to him about stuff, um, yeah, definitely. I've, 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 and I think through this process of doing the, the, the podcast, 
is encouraged me to be more open and speak to people like that because I just think he's had his own problems to deal with in terms of mental health stuff. Um, we, we often say to people, about you come into our house, you'll probably catch some kind of mental health problem because we're all a bit mad, to be honest with you. <laughs> but he's, he's brilliant and he's very much like if you tell him something, it just stays between you kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I'd say I've gotten better with it with, with Mark and I do... I value our relationship really highly in that respect. Yeah. I think for me, you're obviously an older brother, so there's a bit of a different like relationship yeah. when you're when you're younger. One, I'm the youngest of three, and um, I think me and my brother are only two years apart, so it's it's not it's not like a big difference. Um, but he's like I said before, they're obviously like they're like your first friend. But obviously, growing up, you you, you go through these like. Waves of, you know, you can even argue with each other, or really like each other. I think we're, we're really close, and you know, up to the point where, like, you used to borrow, like, used to borrow his ID a couple of times to go and get a drink when I was about 16, 17. So, um, I've got a funny story about that as well, but we can't tell it on here. <laughs> um, so, it's quite, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, I suppose, with, with talking about stuff like this. I wouldn't say it's it's difficult to talk about it, but it, it takes a little bit longer to, to to do it because you know you know they're there for you straight away if you need them there. But if you if you open up a little bit more gently and a little bit less less quick, it that's what it means sometimes because you know I don't know as a young brother you don't want to like just rely on him too much, so it's yeah. it's quite it's quite nice. But yeah, I think there's never been any. Um, any issues with opening up to them? But I'll yeah. tell you a story about your Rob, which is related to this. God, I don't know if I've ever told you this. Not about when, it, when he was in the pub. <laughs> oh, God. No. I think if anybody had saw Rob the other night, you'd have thought, I think he don't like each other at all. I think he was threatening to batty him for most of the year. <laughs> um, but so, there was a, a time, I think it was it was last year, remember when you were having, you were having yeah. a, bit of a bit of a difficult time? And... The three of us went to see the Diego Maradona film on the Saturday. Was that moment? We yeah, yeah. See that? So yeah. we went to see the Diego Maradona film. Anyway, so Pob had spoken to him. Ant had spoken to me <laughs> earlier on that week. Um, I don't know if we'd gone to the cinema and we'd had one of our many chats up in the car outside your house. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I think what I'd said to Ant was, right, well, we'll go out on Saturday, we'll go for a coffee and we'll go and, go and see a film or something. So we plan on doing this. And then I think you'd spoken to Rob in between that conversation. Yeah. And you text me saying, is it all right if our Rob comes on Saturday as well? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course it is. So then your Rob texted me and said, um, said Saturday it's cheer pop up day. <laughs> and it was just like such a nice... Yeah, too. But he said pop. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, so he, he texted me saying it's cheer pop up day. And I just thought it was such a nice thing to say because whilst it wasn't like, a, whilst it, it was purely just like, a, all we need to do is, is is try and make him laugh, like try and make, even just make him laugh for the day or make yeah. that day better. I just thought that was such a nice, like, thing. Nice. It, nice. it was just such a nice text that he sent me. I thought that was really sweet of him. I don't know if I've even ever told you that before, but it was, it was, it was, it was just a really nice thing, I thought. And not the type of thing that you would kind of expect to get in like that kind of brotherly relationship, if you know what I mean, it can often be a bit more like ah. But we're all he's being a soppy dickhead. Let's let's sort it out. <laughs> you know that's what I mean? how men go about it, isn't it? Like, 
I've known you both for a while, I've sort of known your brother for a few years, and like he was a year older than us, a year yeah, older than me in school, which is yeah. two years older than you. So I sort of knew his friends, but recently, like with that WhatsApp group, went the pub. It's easy to be in that environment where it's just like, like dick measurement, really. Yeah. It's yeah. simply, it's like, and it, it's never aggressive, but he was a little bit aggressive. <laughs> but it, it's just funny, isn't it? So it's nice that you can realise when it, no, I've got us not be giving you a nuggie and saying, get a grip, I need to like sit there and say, are you all right? And even little things, I think that's a good tip, go to the pictures, go have a cup of coffee yeah. or something. Quite cheesy, but I had to go on my phone, you might have thought I wasn't texting. That Baz Luhrmann sunscreen song, he says in it, um, be nice to your siblings, they're the best link to your past, and the people who will most likely stick with you in the future. I think that's true, even when you are, when, even when you cause a problem that's your own fault, your siblings or your parents will naturally just defend you, even even if in the in the quiet sort of essence of it, they'll say, you've been a dickhead there, but they'll just stick up for you instinctively. Yeah. So I think if you've got them people around you who will worry about your first, and then try and worry about what you got wrong, second go to them because you need people in there who are going to like basically pull you out of the car wreck and say sit down here's a cup of tea let's sort it out and then we'll put the car out put the flames out later um, I and think I, it's important i think just just on that and going back to johnny i think what what's what's important then to mention is that he, as you say for johnny it was his brother who died from suicide for other people it might be their uncle or their cousin or their dad mm or their friend, and these people all have those really close relationships to you, and just from that short conversation, we demonstrated how much you rely on those people emotionally yeah. for different things. So it kind of emphasises for Johnny how difficult that all must have been for him and for the rest of his family, and on the back of that, how important it is to take on the messages that he said about asking people if they're okay, raising awareness about it, trying to do something positive for people's day, and trying to do something positive for the environment that men live in because we don't want people to have to learn that stuff on the back of someone dying you don't want to have to learn that lesson because someone's lost a life let's learn it proactively and let's get there before it becomes something that we have to fix yeah let's change it off let's, let's learn it first yeah it'll, uh, it'll take care of itself absolutely that's all we've got time for today and that's actually the end of the third series as, as usual, we just want to thank you for, for tuning in and for your comments that we get on Twitter and we do really appreciate it and we hope that it's, it's helping people and that people are enjoying it and, and we'll continue to be doing this you know, a couple of times a week for however long you fancy listening to us, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, the next series, Series 4, will be out in a few weeks' time. We'll, we'll put some stuff out on Twitter about when it will be out and we've got, we can put a provisional list together for Series 4, haven't we? And it's... Exciting. It's yeah, it's really exciting. It should be really, really interesting. Lots of really good guests on there. Lots of lots of topics, some of which we haven't covered as yet. Um, if you do want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at Markin underscore Man, and don't forget to use the hashtag Where's the Talking Lads. If you have enjoyed the podcast, give us a little review, a little rate online on whatever your platform that you use is. Send it to your mates. Send it to your family. Send it to your colleagues. Tell people about it. You know, it, we're always trying to reach as many people as possible. And, and if you have got any suggestions for anything that we could cover, any topics, any any guests, then DM us. Our DMs are always open. Slide in there. We're always sliding in other people, so get involved. Just like to thank Ryan and Ant for your time today, fellas. Not a problem. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I'd like to thank Ant for the croissants. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Danny for the coffee. Yeah. Don't know what I brought to the table. <laughs> <laughs> Just beautifulness. Um, 
And yeah, we'll be back in a few weeks with, with Series 4. Keep an eye on the Twitter feed for more details about that. Lots of exciting stuff to come in Series 4, so, so do keep an eye on that. And as usual, thanks for listening. And we'll we'll leave you with Johnny Sharble's quick fire, which were yeah, they were they were interesting to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. Johnny, how did your Twitter game have to adapt to the change from 140 characters to 280 characters? Um, I got to say twice as much stupid stuff uh, in one tweet as I did before, so it was quite. I didn't, I didn't like it to begin with, but then I grew to uh, enjoy. It. I could say more. I think the first thing that I did after it changed was, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Day to Day, which is the um, satirical news program, but there's a big in 1980. 1980 no one died 1981 no one died 1982 no one there's a big long monologue of where someone just lists the years and no one dying i think that's the first thing i tweeted because it took up all <laughs> 240 characters obviously every day on on twitter johnny there's like a new like a new craze or there's like a new thing that people are doing what's been your favorite of them and what's been your least favorite um so my least favorite is probably you know when they did that whole who is this wrong answers only yeah that's probably my least favorite thing that's happened in recent times um because no jokes no it's not for just saying something wrong it's not funny yeah. uh my favorite one oh god the favorite oh one of my favorite things that's ever happened was um Kale- the colleen rooney and uh, rebecca vardy thing uh, which is uh, that and uh the roly poly throwing uh, was was like one of those things where you had to be online when it happened, um, and yeah, I just yeah, I think probably Rebecca Vardy and, and Colleen Rooney, if that counts, I'm just counting. I'm counting Wag- it. Wagatha Christie. Yeah, I wish I'd come up with that because that's brilliant. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. Johnny, would you rather have Alan Pardew as Newcastle's manager for eternity, or Rafa Benitez, but only on the proviso that Mike Ashley is also the owner for eternity? Um, Rafa Benitez uh, as manager and things we know what we're getting with Mike Ashley now um, if Alan Pardew was manager you don't know who the next man coming him was and um, yeah so I'd probably take Benitez obviously got annoyed with uh, what happened with Mike Ashley but um, you know he still managed to get us decent results and get us safe in the Premier League and I think he'd probably be able to push on um, and you never know, Mike Ashley might warm to uh, spending some money at some point. So, yeah, but I'll take Benitez over Pardew, whatever the circumstance was, I think. Would you rather have 40 million of Joel Linton or would you rather have 40 million of Lint chocolate? I don't know. Lint, um, yeah, Lint chocolate. My mum, right, I can tell this story. And my mum bought me... Um, she came back. She went for a holiday in Austria or Switzerland or somewhere, wherever Lint chocolates made Germany. She went to a Lint chocolate um, shop and bought one of every single flavor, but forgot to pick up a menu of what all the different flavors were. <laughs> so we had to work. I had to work my way through blind of what these chocolates were, and there were some that were like coriander flavored chocolate, oh. and some that was like. <laughs> but it's like you don't know until you've got it in your mouth. Um, so yeah, I, I'd still take Lint, even if it was forty million coriander lint chocolates i'd take the lint chocolates to be honest i like the way you said you had to work your way through them like you had no choice <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know waste not want not yeah 1978 hit me with your rhythm stick was released by ian drury and the blockheads if you had to be hit by any stick in the world what type of stick would it be oh god a match i don't know i'm trying to think of something clever but something stick uh, probably a matchstick because they're quite small um, and it would hurt a lot less. 
But you um, could go on fire. I mean, I'm not. I'm not made of like sulfur. I'm not. Gonna... <laughs> I'm not going to spark up the thing. Yeah, so, yeah, go for a matchstick. Or, or a matchstick chocolate. Oh, there you go. Like yeah. you get, that you get at Christmas. I had some really nice uh, gingerbread ones at Christmas. I had gingerbread ones at Christmas. Oh, they were nice. Better. Yeah, coriander ones. Sorry. <laughs> um, and finally, Johnny, what's your favourite Kevin Keegan story? Uh he got punched in. He's not my favorite. He got punched in a lay-by, which <laughs> obviously. Um, probably when he. I love Kevin Keegan, but he's a man that's like, what's his name? Off some others do have him. Just calamity seems to follow him wherever he goes. Probably when he fell off his um, bike in Superstars, uh, which was very funny. If you've not seen yeah. it on, if you've not yeah. seen it on YouTube, you can see the bike begin to wobble, and then just <laughs> Kevin Keegan fall off it. Um, probably not just being, just being. Uh, very good manager um and signing alan shearer is probably actually my favorite thing that um convincing alan shearer to join newcastle is probably the best thing that kevin keegan ever did um, you know he's won two ballon d'ors and stuff like that but no when he uh, when he signed alan shearer keegan on the inside van vince the other soccer player and keegan wobbling a little bit there and start trying to put a lot of pressure on he's wobbling all over the track Vance Mintz is just about a half a wheel up at the moment, and Keegan's still wobbling, coming to the first pen, and Vance Mintz comes across, and Keegan's gone! Keegan touched the back wheel, and he's gone across the track on his back. Covered in dust, that is a terrible crash. Right across the track on his back, Keegan off, and that's an awful crash. He's up, he looks to be all right. Ron Pickering's down there. No. All right, Kevin. Kevin? Yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. Sure. Just shaking. Nothing worse. Just stay there, see if anywhere, right? Hell of a bump, wasn't it? fine. Yeah, well, is that great? It's just a little side, you know? That's a bit rough. Okay, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's okay. I think you'll get cleaned up. Go over the first head post. Take it easy. You're all right, sir. Well, do you want to have a word? Well, luckily Keegan looks to be all right. He's making little of it, but it really are bad grazes across his back. He's going in for a bit of treatment. He seemed to come up, he seemed to start wobbling right from the very start when he put the pressure on. Here it comes, the wobble's on there, Van Vinst is coming up. Van Vinst comes across to the corner, and there's the touch, and there he goes, four or five yards, dust and dirt in his skin. Kevin, that looked a bit unpleasant and very painful. Uh, well, <laughs> probably looked worse than it was, but I, I just lay still for a minute, trying to feel what was broken or something, but I'm fine. Nothing broken? Just, well, a bit grazed, but uh, no harm done, it was just a complete accident. And, uh, How do you think it happened? Well, um, it's a race really for this corner. I think whoever gets in that corner's got a good chance of winning. I had the inside lane and Gilbert was half a bike up on me when he come across. And uh, unfortunately, if it had been a full bike up, he'd have missed me. But I was trying to keep the inside lane, which I thought would be the best. And uh, caught his back wheel. Just an accident, you know. I couldn't really go anywhere else other than brake and move out of the way. And I wasn't prepared to brake. So <laughs> got the grays instead. You had a tremendous wobble on coming up the straight at the start. Yeah, I thought you? my wheels were loose. <laughs> don't know, what, don't know whether they were or not. I just felt as if they were a bit loose. Um, you think you've been a, putting a bit too much pressure on your ride of the saddle and pumping a bit hard? Well, I was, yeah. Oh, probably why I was riding the bike because I, I'm, you know, uh, more used to a car than a bike. So <laughs> probably stick to one by now. But you've had the treatment. Do you think you're okay? Come yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, it's a bit sore, but uh, a couple of days. You know, nothing worse than you get. Well. It may look bad, but I don't think there's much wrong. This will have to be the end of your being in superstars for this tournament. Won't well, it? I might do the, I might uh, steeplechase. I might do the steeplechase. Really? Well, if it means difference between coming third and fourth, maybe.